Hello and welcome to The Vinyl Approach, episode 13. My name is Tom Wilmeth. I've been publishing my thoughts on music and have been involved with radio since the early 1970s. I call myself a collector of popular and unpopular music. The Vinyl Approach is a bi-weekly podcast that takes a look at a wide range of albums and artists. Firsts in music are difficult to track down, and getting people to agree on what came first is pretty much impossible. For example, the first rock and roll record. Is there such a thing? I don't know any two people who agree on what could be called the first rock and roll record. David Bowie once said that it wasn't the first person who became famous for doing something new, it was the second person who did it. Interesting. Or maybe David Bowie was the second person to say that. I heard Mitch Miller tell an interviewer that if a producer has a failed musical experiment, he should immediately try it again. Miller said he watched as colleagues would take some of his failed musical ideas and have huge hit records doing the exact same thing that the public had initially rejected. Today on The Vinyl Approach, we take a look not necessarily at firsts, but at two early endeavors of combining jazz and rock, or jazz and folk. I'm not sure if these were intentional musical marriages on the part of either performer, but it happened. The artists to be discussed today are Donovan and Tim Harden. Each performer had a concert record that was released in 1968. Both sets are noteworthy for the singer's accompaniment. The first is Donovan, live in concert at the Anaheim Convention Center. It's a performance from the fall of 1967 that shows Donovan in all his hippie grandeur. In fact, the MC speaks of winding his way through the stage flowers to get to the microphone. In this introduction, the announcer also suggests that Donovan is able to control the weather. Pretty trippy stuff, but once the music begins, it's clear that Donovan knows what he's doing. The lengthy album is filled with songs known and especially unknown, but Donovan is able to hold the audience with his music. I'm not a huge Donovan fan, but this is an enjoyable set. Even when a few songs get overly similar in tempo and mood, the accompaniment keeps things interesting. And this is the point of today's podcast, the jazz backing that some artists were starting to use in their concerts of this era. As early as 1966, a handful of jazz musicians were beginning to record their own interpretations of folk and rock songs, including Bud Shank, Gary Burton, Keith Jarrett, and Jerry Mulligan. But this was different from an artist like Donovan himself adding jazz elements to his own recordings. By the time of this 1967 Donovan concert, Bob Dylan had famously added a dense rock band backing to his acoustic sound, which can be heard on his 1966 Royal Albert Hall concert album. But Donovan took a lighter road, augmenting his guitar and vocals with piano, bass, two percussionists, and a reed player who doubled on flute and sax. The result was a success. I would not call this a true jazz ensemble backing Donovan, as Joni Mitchell would later use, but suggestions of the form can be heard throughout most of the concert. In fact, only three songs on this live Donovan album are truly solo acoustic guitar numbers. The rest of the 14 songs feature the band, and especially Harold McNair's flute. McNair was a British jazz musician who toured with Quincy Jones and recorded with Charles Mingus. McNair also issued his own records as group leader on RCA Records. Playing with Donovan, McNair is showcased on sax on the stretchy number Preachin' Love, which also includes a drum solo from Tony Carr. This was 1967, after all. David Tronosco can clearly be heard plucking and occasionally bowing his upright bass, which adds to the jazz feel. 
Donovan features the ensemble to great effect on Young Girl Blues, a moody number of disillusionment, one of his best. Other recognizable songs from Donovan's early catalog are here, but not as many as one might expect. So, is this music jazz? No. Is it jazz rock or jazz folk? No. But these arrangements and the instrumentation nudges genre boundaries a bit closer together. Donovan Live at the Anaheim Convention Center wasn't the first album to do this, but it was a record that sold well, and a large rock music audience heard it. When released in August 1968, it was influential. And if nothing else, it was a pleasant and well-recorded live set that showed Donovan in all his flower power glory and in good voice. This album holds up well today. The second album I want to discuss on this vinyl approach is less well-known. Six months after Donovan played his West Coast show, Tim Harden was in New York City for a high-profile engagement at Town Hall. It would result in the album Tim Harden 3, Live in Concert. Like the Donovan record, this entire album comes from a single gig. And like the Donovan set, the Harden record had unusually long sides for the era, clocking in close to 30 minutes each. Tim Harden was seen as a bright light in the nascent singer-songwriter school. He had no radio hits of his own, but wrote songs that fellow musicians were clamoring to record. Chief among these, If I Were a Carpenter, and Reason to Believe. Rod Stewart nearly made this song his own, but many others recorded Reason to Believe, including The Youngbloods, Ricky Lee Jones, and The Dillards. Other titles by Tim Harden may not be as familiar, but were well-known in the 1960s. His song Misty Roses, for example, became an instant standard. It was recorded by Peggy Lee, Johnny Mathis, and even the modern jazz quartet. But Misty Roses is largely forgotten today. Unlike Donovan's live set, which included many numbers his fans had never heard before, this Tim Harden album is filled with songs that his audience knew and loved, but as I say, are now rarely heard. When Tim Harden played Town Hall in April 1968, audience expectations were high. He delivered. Sort of. His band carried him through musical rough patches and near breakdowns, expertly dealing with Harden's sudden tempo shifts and dropped measures on nearly every tune. Harden's backing band included musicians Mike Maneri on vibes, Warren Bernhardt on piano, and Daniel Hankin on second guitar. The music is both intensely upbeat and gentle depending on the tune, but always with a jazz groove held down by Eddie Gomez on upright bass and drummer Donald McDonald. Great instrumentalists, but their primary task was to musically prop up the singer. Songs hang in the balance and do occasionally collapse, but Hardin's versatile group is there to pick him up and continue. With such looseness, the sound of this Tim Harden set frequently suggests jazz, as much or more so than the Donovan album. One primary difference is that while Donovan gave his band occasional room to solo, there were no real such solo opportunities at Harden's concert. But the frequent instrumental flourishes and the feel that the musicians gave to Harden's songs suggested jazz just as strongly. The band especially cuts loose on both Danville Dame and the closer Smugglin' Man all the while concealing the fact that group leader Harden is nearly incapacitated. In the album's liner notes, columnist and jazz musician Michael Zurin describes his interview with Tim Harden on the morning of the concert. Zurin writes of Harden's laconic style of speaking that morning and being offered a Coke. It's never made clear if Harden is drinking a Coca-Cola for breakfast 
or if something more powerful is on the menu. Hardin tells the interviewer that he considers himself to be a jazz singer, equates jazz with the blues, and becomes passionate to the point of belligerence. Zwerin, who later wrote a book about his own drug addiction, tacitly makes it clear in these album notes that Hardin is in the grip of narcotics. Band member Mike Maneri would later confirm this, saying that the town hall show was a rough one because Hardin was totally strung out that night. This was not an unusual situation, he said. It's just that on this night, the set was being recorded. A reviewer for the All Music Guide describes the accompaniment as tentative, suggesting that this group hadn't played much with Hardin. But vibraphonist Maneri says that's wrong. The core of the ensemble had been with Hardin for hundreds of live dates. The sometimes uncertain nature of the playing was the sound of instrumentalists trying to support the musically unpredictable singer. I don't think it's a coincidence that Tim Harden's live set includes two heartfelt tributes to performers who struggled with narcotics, Lenny Bruce and Hank Williams. Harden even sounds like Lenny Bruce in his spoken introduction of the band, which is to say, strung out. Harden sings with knowing empathy in both of these tribute songs, which serve as centerpieces to each side of the record. Lyrics specifically mention drugs by Williams and Bruce, name-checking morphine in both tunes, as well as whiskey in the Hank Williams number. Fascinating. Almost confessional. And each a premonition of what was to become of Harden himself, who would die of a heroin overdose a dozen years later, a long time after his talent had been shackled and his fame had drifted away. This is a good album. I like listening to it. As originally issued, Tim Harden 3 is a holding pattern containing concert versions of songs from his previous studio releases. The thing that makes it an important set is the way that Harden chooses to present his material here, relying on the backing of versatile jazz musicians. So what happened to these two troubadours? Well... After his live album, Donovan placed a few more hits on the radio, including Wear Your Love Like Heaven and The Hurdy Gurdy Man. In 1969, he had a top ten single with a narrative about Atlantis. This had an equally unusual flip side, an anti-war statement called To Susan on the West Coast Waiting. Both songs, or recitations actually, hit the chart. Later that year, Donovan teamed with the Jeff Beck group for Goo Goo Barabajoggle, Love is Hot. A rockin' summer single, but it barely hit the top 40. Even so, it did get some radio play. After this, things fell off rapidly for Donovan. Once ultra-hip and praised lavishly by fellow musicians, the ride seemed to be over. His Baraba Joggle album was followed by Open Road, which Donovan called Celtic Rock. Many of the songs pondered the end of the hippie era. Next was a recording aimed at children, and then Cosmic Wheels, an album with song titles including The Intergalactic Laxative. Some critics called the record unmemorable. There were more albums, but the audience was gone. In fact, most of Donovan's albums of the past 40 years have not been released in the United States, a sad postscript for a once-influential artist. On the upside, Donovan is alive and well, and he occasionally tours. As I have already said, the follow-up story for Tim Harden is less happy. Harden struggled with heroin addiction for most of his adult life. After writing several first-rate songs in the mid-1960s, Harden's muse was soon drowned in drugs. An invitation to perform at Woodstock was meant to be a big break for Tim Harden as a performer, but according to festival organizer Michael Lang, the set was a disappointment. Nothing by Harden appears on the Woodstock album or in the movie. 
Also in 1969, Hardin released the first of three albums for Columbia, but they all sold poorly. It was clear that his composer's pen was drying up by this time, since these and subsequent records were increasingly filled with songs written by others. The quality of his concert appearances further deteriorated, and in 1980, at the age of 39, Tim Hardin died of a heroin overdose. As mentioned earlier, If I Were a Carpenter was Tim Hardin's best-known song. Recorded by many artists, from the Four Tops to Bob Seger to Johnny Cash, it was Bobby Darren who had the most success with If I Were a Carpenter, reaching the top ten in 1966. In an unlikely inversion, Tim Hardin's only chart entry was written by Bobby Darren, called A Simple Song of Freedom. It did not make the top 40. With no hits of his own played on classic rock radio, the name Tim Hardin is not well known today. And as fine as many of his songs are, most have been forgotten. Even so, Reason to Believe and If I Were a Carpenter continued to be played and re-recorded over 50 years after Hardin wrote them. His own recordings are well worth searching out. If someone asked me to recommend music by today's two artists, for Donovan, I would suggest the In Concert album I discussed. There are a couple of live shows by him out there, so make sure you find the one recorded at the Anaheim Convention Center in 1967. For a collection of the radio hits and his best-known studio tracks, get Donovan's Greatest Hits. Tim Harden's studio material is more elusive. The CD Best of Tim Harden from the 20th Century Masters Millennium series is a skimpy offering, but it's about all that's out there. I also recommend the live set discussed today, Tim Harden 3, live in concert. And with that, we'll wrap up this episode of The Vinyl Approach. A quick reminder that each of these episodes has an accompanying song list on Spotify. I'm Tom Wilmeth, and if you are interested in reading more of my opinions about music, I have published a book called Sound Bites, A Lifetime of Listening. Sound Bites is available on Amazon. This has been The Vinyl Approach, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>